0: Hello everyone, it's November 21st, 2023. Well, Starship made its second attempt to orbit, didn't quite make it, once again, but it was a step in the right direction. It got a little further, a little higher, and that's what we like to see. So let's get into the details about everything that went right and wrong and why and liftoff. And for Vitar, Welcome to episode 435 of the orbital mechanics podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So Dennis, before we talk about Starship, let's talk about uh, a much older space vehicle, space shuttle. <laughs> I hear you have some <laughs> trivia for
1: us. Yeah. So I thought this was, these were some very interesting numbers. So there's actually two answers to this one. So this is, I guess, okay, a, a so, 2 Okay.
2: So wait, you, I don't think, I don't think since we started recording that you said that it's the numbers game show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're doing, all right. So let's do a little, uh, a fun little trivia uh, I hope that's it's fun. I think it'll be. Yeah, um, <laughs> Yeah, so we got. I got some shuttle numbers for you, and these are some pretty interesting ones. This is this is a two parter in particular. Okay, because so it two involves. Answers. There's two answers because it involves okay. both liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Okay. Now, over the 30 years of the shuttle program, apparently they had 350 million liters of LH2 that they procured and 200 million liters of liquid oxygen that they procured just for the SSMEs. What fraction between the transportation, the filling, the tanks, the untanking it, the getting scrubbed on the pad, all the different stuff that happens, test readiness firings, what fraction of the liquid hydrogen and what fraction of liquid oxygen Wound up actually consumed by the SSMEs firing during a mission.
2: I mean, just just like in reference to any vehicle ever, I would say probably about ten percent. But could you could you say the total numbers again?
1: Three hundred fifty million liters of liquid hydrogen and two hundred million liters of liquid oxygen. And there were losses from filling the tank, from just sitting in the tank, and then from getting it to the tank to orbiter. Not just getting scrubbed, but also the you know the venting that would happen. You know, uh, the, uh, I, one interesting thing uh, I, I learned uh, when I was looking at this was that they had to lose some filling the tank, some of the propellant, because they had to pressurize the propellant to get mm-hmm. it to go from the trucks into the tank um, in the first place. And so you were going to have some losses from that alone.
2: So, so three hundred and fifty million. And 250 million.
1: Uh, Just 200 million for the latter.
2: Oh, 200. I'm kind of surprised it is that big of a difference, but, you know, then again, hydrogen is colder than oxygen. So.
0: Well, it's liters, right? Because hydrogen is also much less dense. And
1: so.
2: Oh, oh, you're right. It's liters.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, not by mass. That's that's an important point. So, yeah. Yeah. So you've got. I wonder, I wonder, yeah, exactly what the difference is between the volumes of the. Uh, hydrogen tank and the oxygen tank um, and whether that's the same as this Two hundred to three fifty ratio for how close it is. I'm sure it'll be different. I would. I would think it's pretty close. That sounds like the right ratio.
0: Yeah, but I would assume that more liquid hydrogen would be not used just because it, you know, like boils off so quickly. Mm -hmm. So it's harder to keep it and actually, you know, like keep it and use it. Mm -hmm. Like I just see that kind of being sort of wasted and dumped overboard constantly.
1: Yeah, and to make sure I'm clear, I I originally was thinking like asking what is the total volume that was procured over the whole program and I don't like those kind of questions because you got to kind of like just do mental math and order of magnitude to try to get close to it and so that's why I thought just figuring out what fraction actually made it you know getting pumped into the combustion chambers of the ssmes when they were firing uh, for launch what fractions of the uh, hydrogen and oxygen actually made it <laughs> that you paid for uh, I think those numbers are that that would be more fun than trying to guess you know. Three fifty million and the two hundred million, because those numbers are so yeah. big. It's, I mean, you can't wrap your brain around that. I, I mean, would have never guessed.
0: Yeah. So I don't know. So like you
2: said, Ben, ten percent. You you said is about what the average is. Ten percent for both. For that, I mean, that that's kind of what I would expect. Okay. So calling the chat says this is just a math problem. You take the tank volume, multiply by the number of missions, and you're in the ballpark. Sure, that's that's still going to be a a fairly rough estimate because the pressures are going to be different from the farm to the vehicle. I'm assuming that the farm is going to be at higher pressures than the vehicle. I don't know. Maybe it's the other way around. I'd be kind of surprised if they were the same. But following up on that, the liquid oxygen tank in the ET is 56,000 liters. And so if we're talking about Two hundred million liters. Honestly, the losses have got to be a lot lower than I would expect because, like, those numbers are are pretty, pretty close. Like, mm-hmm. uh, right, fifty five, fifty six thousand for for a single launch. Right, fifty six thousand.
1: Now, keep in mind, there's going to be scrubs. There's going to be scrubs. Right, right, going to be <laughs> scrubs. But how many but, shuttle missions were there? I don't remember. Ooh, little side trivia. I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's 135.
2: <laughs> okay, so it's interesting because if you're if you're thinking about it in terms of lot losses, there's so many different things that could contribute to losses that you're just never going to find them all, you know, in a casual setting. So, we can think about it like Colin said, if you start by thinking about how much was expended, that that gives you the maximum amount that could be expended, right? One tank per launch. That's a that's an easier number so 56000 liters is like 3 millionths of the total of 200 million so then if we take that and multiply it uh, by 300 and or 135 that's about 4% it's, uh 0.378 so as a starting point I think my 10 was pretty close. I think that's within an order of magnitude, but I think following Colin's good idea of just doing the math, my 10% (laughs) is probably high. It's probably, it's probably closer to three or 4%. What do you think, David?
0: Uh, yeah, well, I kind of cheated and just uh, took all those numbers and you started there. It out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. well, at least for the hydrogen. So for hydrogen, I'm going to say about 2%, and the oxygen, whatever you just said, I forget, like 4%. So we'll go with that, <laughs> or at least that's what okay. I'll go with.
1: So we got a few percent from uh, David and Ben, and Colin in the chat has locked in 50%, and the actual numbers are for hydrogen and oxygen, respectively. 54% and 32%. Oh,
2: wow.
1: Wound up getting gobbled up by the SSMEs.
2: So I figured out where the bulk of my error came from. The shuttle oxygen tanks are not uh, <laughs> quantity quantity on board. I, I said 56,000 liters. It's actually almost half a million liters oh, at okay. launch. Oh. <laughs> so so there go... But But that's still only one zero, right? So the... Updating that number, taking uh, 534,000 liters times 135 launches, divided by 200 million total liters of liquid oxygen delivered to Cape Kennedy, still only gives you 36%, not 54%. Like we are still on the wrong side of half.
1: 56 versus 500. That sounds like a... uh... You know the order of magnitude, and so if you took your few percent and multiplied it by ten, boom, you get your yeah two two hundred. By the way, liters, you see what so- yeah Colin did? Like that's the kind of back of the envelope stuff that makes a great engineer. Yeah. Order of magnitude calculations are like a great skill set to have.
2: Yeah, when you don't drop a zero, <laughs> crazy. Good job, Colin. You, and yeah, you so totally congratulations.
1: Yeah. And so congratulations to Colin who is our winner for this week's shuttle trivia.
2: <laughs> Thank you Dennis. We we need to get sure. you a theme song cuz <laughs> This is way <really> too <laughs> fun.
0: All right. So, Starship flight 2, it lifted off. <laughs> it was delayed by what? 1 day cuz it was supposed to be Friday. And what was the issue? Was it an actuator?
2: Yeah, it was one of the grid fin actuators. Grid fin actuators, um, yeah. And then it was also delayed by like a minute or something due to like late pressurization of, of one of the fuel tanks. Like they needed to wait for it to, to come up to pressure. But yeah, other than that, like the the launch went off, the, the lift off with, went off without a hitch. It looked really good. Um, So I, I was wondering if you guys had uh, any more of an idea of what changed since flight 1 um NASA space flight cited that the uh, the engine sections uh gas purge system um because like the first <laughs> the first launch had gases inside the engine section being dense enough to ignite and burn and uh, melt all the electronics. So this time they've always had uh, a purge system. I'm assuming it's CO2 that they're dumping in. then there are, you know, small vents around the outside. And so the, the air gets replaced by CO2, which is uh, nice and fire resistant. Um, But so they, they increased the size of the tanks in the purge system and they added more vents around the outside so presumably they're dumping in co2 faster and then um nasa spaceflight also mentioned that the uh, FTS system the flight termination system got larger explosive charges on both booster and starship and that they were placed in a new position that apparently is better at, at unzipping them and i was wondering if you guys knew of any other changes because i I think elon was bragging about there being like a a thousand changes and it's like well you know you put a sticker on the side and it counts as a change so like how many of these things like how many changes were actually consequential
1: well i mean would you you count that they had the new kind of hot firing interstage sort of setup yeah the
2: new interstage i think that definitely counts Mm -hmm. sure it's not addressing issues from flight one but sure
1: did you mention the uh the the ground support
2: Update. Yeah, it doesn't really count, right? Like that's <laughs> right. It's <That's> ground <laughs> support, not the rocket.
1: The lack of a uh, rocket but yeah. tornado, man. That's <laughs> Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the deluge plate worked really well. The upside down shower head worked really, really well. Um, they also gave it a little bit of a break. It's not quite an apples to apples comparison. I mean, obviously, it was much more successful, but they did also start the rocket up faster. So instead of the ignition sequence taking three seconds or sorry, six seconds to ramp up to full thrust and get launching, they cut it in half down to three seconds. So the the ground support equipment wasn't subjected to uh, that intense environment for uh, for a good. Three seconds <laughs> compared to the first time, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that counts for changes to the
1: rocket. SpaceX would say that's uh, what stage zero, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not aware of any other changes. Um, right? They still had like a, a kind of hodgepodge mix of, I think hodgepodge was actually Elon was actually Elon's word itself of the types of engines that they had on the booster. That was kind of a mix of ones in different levels of development, I guess.
2: I mean, when you got to get up to thirty three. And, you know, a couple of months ago, what, like six months ago, you destroyed 33 out of your pool. Yeah, m- makes sense. So Colin in the chat says that they switched from hydraulic actuators for the thrust vector control to electrical actuators, which is pretty darn cool. Um, like that that's actually a big deal.
1: Like we said before the show, there's just so much going on with... SpaceX and even just Starship alone in particular, that it's tough to keep track of everything.
2: <laughs> so the the liftoff was pretty nominal. Um, like we said, there was no concrete tornado. Um, apparently a few bits of metal were missing and or damaged. <laughs> I guess if, if it's missing, it's got to be damaged as well. Uh, but maybe it could be damaged and not missing. Um, but nothing as dramatic as the first time. Um, there were some absolutely gorgeous shock diamonds. I mean, the fact that you've got thirty-three engines basically behaving like one single engine uh, means that this is like the the widest engine nozzle, right? Like it's it's just the whole bottom of the <laughs> of the vehicle is one giant nozzle because they're just packed in so close, and so the entire width of the vehicle is. Uh, is like mirrored in uh, it, this blue exhaust coming out the bottom or I, g- I guess it's it's uh, methane so it's probably mostly orange but in the in the live stream it looked blue maybe that's just because they were launching it at sunrise I think it is
0: blue right isn't that isn't that usually the color of methane? When oh, it is burns? it? I can never remember. Or even more of a purple color, too, actually. Yeah. But yeah, yeah kind of purple. They look blue in this.
2: Yeah, but you get like these lovely shock diamonds that are as wide mm-hmm. as the entire rocket <laughs> is wide. Like it just, it's unbelievable. And so it, it ascended up, it went through Max Q, no problem. Um, and they even had a successful transition through uh their first stage engine shutdowns as they're getting ready to do this hot staging. And uh, I put together a Jeff, I'll have it in the show notes, that is the engine shutdown sequence. And it's really beautiful. You can see it in the video. You can watch as each of the engines shut down pretty clearly. Um, But they they shut them down in a symmetric way, right? You don't want to shut down everything on the left and then everything on the right because you're going to wind up. Uh, with asymmetric thrust. But you also can't shut everything down all at once. Um, Scott Manley um, did a a pretty good uh, breakdown of what he saw um, in the live stream. He pointed out that the N2 rocket um, on one of its one of its, what, like two or three uh, attempted launches?
1: I think there were four doomed ones.
2: <laughs> there you go, yeah. yeah. It, uh, it shut down too many engines all at once, and you get uh, a hammer effect where um, all of the propellant is flowing through the, the plumbing very fast because you're trying to feed it into the explosion as quickly as possible. And if you suddenly stop that movement by closing valves – all the propellant still has a lot of mass. It's all liquid, which is, you know, much more massive than, um, than gas. And so it just smacks into, uh, the closed valve and the pressures just absolutely spike. And so they shut these down in this sequence to, to keep the pressures, uh, maintainable. We'll, we'll find out if, they shut them down slowly enough because there were <laughs> there were still problems, but I suspect it didn't have anything to do with the shutdown sequence and so i I put this gif together because um, they're shutting them down uh, in groups of five, four. Uh, three, two, and one uh, engines being shut down at the same time. But they're having to s- shut them down uh, in a way that's as symmetric as possible. And so the first one uh, results in this really lovely Pentagon. And then you just shut down all the ones, you know, between the two that shut down. Um, and that's two sets of five And then you have to pick two engines to shut down, which they uh, do asymmetrically, interestingly enough. And then they're able to shut down another five, and then they're left with just three on the outer ring. So you get five, five, two, five, three. And then the middle ring shuts down uh, instead of five and five, they do four, five, one, um, which is really interesting. And the asymmetry um, for the four, they leave let's say they leave, uh, instead of shutting down five, the one that they leave on is off on the right. Well, then you shut down five in a symmetric way, and then you have one left over. You'd kind of expect you'd want that one to be on the left because originally you had more thrust on the right. And no, they, they actually, they're doing this roughly symmetrically, but they seem to prefer a little bit of asymmetry. Um, and maybe it's just um, due to... The plumbing arrangements, you know, maybe you want to distribute these valve closings across as many different nets as possible. I, I'm not, I'm not sure what it looks like, um, but yeah, five five two five three four five one. I think this might have to be a, a password for me at some point because because it's just too good of a number sequence. It's it's regular but irregular at the same time. So anyway, that brings them down to just the middle three engines. And uh, I guess they, they throttled those down to 50% as well, so that they're running on very, very little thrust, just enough to keep pushing the fuel down to the bottom of both rockets. One thing to note is, as they're shutting down rockets, you start to see a, a gas plume, and that's totally normal, right? That's a little bit of propellant flow still coming out of the engines after uh, they've stopped burning all their propellant. And then they did a, a successful uh, hot fire or, uh, uh, hot staging. Uh, it looked really pretty. Um, but the booster flipped over really quickly. And I suspect that the pressure of the upper, st- uh, of the upper stage, <laughs> the, the pressure from Starship. Blasting its engines down really helped to spin booster, uh, spin the booster around. Now it completed its flip really nicely. It, uh, fired up its engines in the middle of its flip. Like when it's like 90 degrees, uh, to help, you know, get out of the way and then it can complete the the rotation and it didn't spin out of control. You know, it just, it, it looked really nice, but it did, it didn't last, um, <laughs> So I, I wrote in the notes that the booster flip was a slow catastrophe. Uh Scott Manley points out uh that the booster speeds quickly plummeted as the upper stage separated. And he says that uh they likely had negative acceleration. And like I, I agree, like the booster's already slowing down. As soon as those engines get turned off, the thing started to slow down. So that's negative acceleration. But then when Starship lights up its engines, it's like more negative uh, acceleration.
1: Sorry, just to make sure I'm not missing a physics thing. Did you say that because when they throttled down because it was that that was like a negative acceleration?
2: I can't. Let me let me look in at the speeds. Yeah. So so it does decelerate before uh, Starship starts up its engines. So it's it's running the center three engines uh, at 50% thrust or whatever. Um, and that's not enough to overcome the little bit of drag that they have up at 70 kilometers. But it's definitely not enough to overcome the gravity pulling them back down. So yeah, so, so they were already decelerating at that point, which means that uh, is it Newton's, I guess it's Newton's first law, uh, an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So, due to Newton's first law, they w- were already having propellant begin to slosh forward because, from the propellant's perspective, the booster is moving backwards
1: now. But, I'd go with the second law for that. Um,
2: oh, is that? First, is that the first laws law is typically
1: yeah. when you don't have a net external force acting on isn't,
2: you. It's isn't like, the second it's, law it's, F equals ma?
1: Yes. The first law you can almost think of as F equals MA when F equals zero. Oh, okay. If sure. F equals zero, then A equals zero. And so it's like a limiting case of the second law. I actually don't even think they were originally in that order. That's fair. <laughs> <A> <laughs> I mean,
2: what do. that would make sense. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't build on each other in the right way. Like you can never remember which one's which. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like I, I know, I understand the implications of all of them. I could, you know. I could write them out. I just couldn't get them in the right order. Uh, Colin says, no, they still had positive acceleration in their inertial reference frame because of the three center engines. There would have been no fuel slosh at that point. Oh, yeah, because it's, it's gravity losses, right? Yeah, if it was atmospheric losses, that'd be one thing. But it's basically in free fall plus. Sure. Okay, Colin, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. You're totally right. Good point. Yeah. So So as soon as you add anything more than um then gravity that's when you start to have negative acceleration so that's why scott said that so good job scott he intuited that much quicker than i did uh right so as soon as the um uh starship the starship engines start up and start pushing gas off the top of the booster we see that reaction and the speed slowing down even more like the acceleration increases uh beyond the deceleration due to gravity so the propellant sloshes forward but like that's not necessarily a death knell right like it depends on how much slosh is happening as the vehicle starts to flip uh, the middle ring of engines start back up only one of them failed and then as the flip and the the boost back burn continues uh, they lose a, a core engine and then they lose two more middle ring engines um, and then things really start to get bad. So you start seeing this this cycle where there's uh, a bright flare off to the side, and then uh, a cl- the flare kind of turns into a cloud, and then you lose an engine or you lose two engines. And that happens, I don't know, maybe three times, l- picking off engines. And I would really like to say that it's picking off engines left and right because that's like my habit of speech. But oddly enough, it was only picking off engines right <laughs> All the from the perspective of the uh, of the long lens uh, camera on the ground, the tracking camera, all these engine failures are all on the right side of the frame. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, the booster when it flips, the nose goes up and towards us, so top becomes bottom, bottom becomes top, but left and right stay the same from our perspective. And what's weird about that is that you'd kind of expect the top or the bottom engines. To maybe be more impacted uh, by the flip just due to the way that the the fuel gets delivered to the engines, right? I believe there's only one intake. So if that intake chokes, all the engines choke. But if there's additional effects from uh, propellant having to fight the rotational acceleration, then you would expect the top or the bottom engines to go out rather than the left or the right. Uh, but it, it was all off on the right. So I think it's just... I think it's probably just dumb luck. Um, but who knows, maybe, maybe the plumbing wraps around. Uh, and so there's, you know, some, uh, weird, like, uh, Coriolis effect that can maybe choke off one side before the other. Um, But if you go to the video to double check what I've said, which you always should keep in mind that the display of the engines on the live stream is rotated by 90 degrees. If you want to make it match up with the engine orientation that you see on screen, you're going to have to imagine it. You're in your mind. You're going to have to rotate it 90 degrees clockwise Um, because it has been rotated counterclockwise for the live stream relative to the, to the camera. So, right. They, they're losing, uh, engines right and right. Then there's a a puff of vented propellant, uh, that leaks out from about the middle of the rocket. And then the whole thing just goes up, uh, in smoke, um, and the camera that they were using is absolutely amazing. You could see pieces of debris inside that cloud. Uh, and it, it really, it looked really good. I mean, like it looked like, uh, a Hollywood production.
0: I think it's probably because it was so high up at that point that the explosion, and plus it's big too. But you know, so it's a huge, it's a huge rocket. But also, things tend to, they just tend to look better at high altitudes, you know, because there's uh, no air to stop them. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I easily. totally
2: agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Also, as I'm watching the footage, it's tough to say if it's just differing lighting conditions, but it almost looks like, uh, like the booster rotates around its long axis. It, it you know, a, a roll, but I. I suspect that it's an optical illusion due to the changing lighting conditions. It's also really hard to say if those bright flares are fire or an explosion. It it could just be that it's enough gas being released all at once that it's a very bright cloud. But I mean, all these vents are very directional, right? Like they make very tight cones and it, it really, it's a lot of propellant being dumped overboard all at once. It's it's not great.
1: That's interesting that it looks like the, the origin of the explosion is closer to the like closer or higher up from the booster than where the engines are.
2: Oh yeah, totally, totally. And uh, Scott Manley had a, a really good point. If there's, Um, Some sort of explosive event uh, or, you know, an overpressure event uh, down at the base of the rocket, that pressure can actually travel backwards and it could go all the way through um, the pipe that runs through. I believe it's oxygen on the top, methane on the bottom. Right. And so that, that downcomer pipe can have a pressure wave rush back up through it. And that's certainly what it looks like here, right? It looks like the upper tank, the oxygen tank is what started to vent more, more than you would like it to. Uh, I, I hesitate to say ripped apart, but I mean, it's, it's got to be at least a small tear on the side. And it, it certainly looks like it's the oxygen tank doing this, not the, the engines or the, the methane tank.
1: We know the orientation on the booster?
2: The orientation, uh, which, which tank is on top and which is on yeah. the bottom?
0: I'm reading that they did swap them, yeah. So it used to be one way, now it's the other.
2: So, okay. It, it kind of sounds like we're expecting the methane tank to be on top right now.
1: Yeah, based on this, at yeah. least some of this... Uh... Some of these figures we're seeing from Google.
2: But either either way, it's the upper tank, right, <laughs> that explodes. But yeah, Dennis, you're, you're totally right. You would expect the explosion to happen down at the engines, and it doesn't. And it doesn't even – it's not even being torn apart by uh, the FTS. It's not being torn apart by, like, atmospheric, like, shear forces. It's just something – something went boom well how can so so
0: how can you be sure it's not the FTS that that was still a possibility
2: it sounds like the the community rumors the rumors going around the community are that uh Starship activated its FTS and the booster did not so I don't I don't know where those I don't know the reasoning for that conclusion honestly it doesn't look like FTS to me um in the video but that it's not a high enough frame rate video that it would necessarily mm-hmm. be distinguishable.
1: I don't know enough about FTS systems, but like, do they usually have the kind of zipper approach to them? Because this just looks like yeah. you know an FTS that would be putting a bomb in between your two tanks and having <laughs> <letting> it go. <laughs> Which maybe that's how it works. Like I said, I don't know much about <laughs> FTS.
2: Systems. Yeah, no, 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 no. It almost exclusively it's it's deck cord run down the side of of the tank, and and we did mention that they rearranged. Uh, where they put the detonation, the, the detonatable material, the explosive material on, um, on this stack, they moved it from flight one. But I, I think that means that they picked a different, a different spot on the tank to run that vertical line, not that they changed from vertical to something else. But, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm guessing, sure, sure. but it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty safe thing to guess. Okay. So, so that's the booster. Um, Starship, uh, lasted longer, but also did not uh, f- complete its mission. So first off, even if Spaceship would not have activated its FTS, as we've already spoilered, um, it probably would not have survived re-entry. During the ascent, you could see heat tiles uh, missing, and I think even you could see them coming off new spots opening up in in the heat shield um and these are, of course are the hexagonal uh heat tiles on on one side of starship
0: i'm not sure if i saw any, any tiles coming off i, I mean i saw that, that they were missing i did see what looked like i guess it was just sheets of ice that were coming off something that's coming off the like from the booster itself
2: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's it's really it. hard for me to tell if i'm seeing new spots open i think i am I think I am seeing new spots open, but it could also just be that uh, as the viewpoint changes uh, and as as the pi- the pixels realign, like you know, it's just a, yeah. uh, a pixel issue. So that could that could totally be the case. But either way, there are definitely <laughs> tiles missing. Uh, so yeah, probably wouldn't have uh, been able to re-enter. We're not sure what caused um, the FTS to be activated. Um, in fact, I'm not even super confident myself that it was the FTS uh that that's what NASA spaceflight says and that's what I've seen one or two other people say but you know until SpaceX says something or uh uh FCC says something it, yeah could could be whatever
1: can i just say like it was it was it's fascinating watching the video and the footage of i guess when when starship uh the ship itself explodes because it's just so low on the horizon and it's after dawn. So it is very orange. Like it almost looks Mm -hmm, like you're looking at like, suddenly we're on Mars now and you know, (laughs) we finally, we finally made it. (laughs) But
2: yeah. Uh, Yeah. I said, I said until FCC says something. Yeah. I meant FAA. Right. So as this thing is starting to go over the horizon, we see sort of like a big puffy puff and then more of a smaller concentrated puff. And then it's gone. And, um, Scott Manley actually sped up the uh, the footage so that you could see uh, the changes in the oxygen and methane levels in the tanks. Uh, you could see the changes happening much quicker, and the oxygen consumption definitely increases as these puffs are starting to come out of the vehicle. So um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know any one particular thing happened. Doesn't mean that there's necessarily a hole in the oxygen tank it doesn't mean that you know one of the engines uh, stopped consuming as much methane and started like I don't know whatever you could come up with but it is interesting uh, so we'll we'll have to see what happened there. And then like that that's kind of all she wrote. One of the fun things is that uh, Jonathan McDowell posted a photo from NOAA. their long rate or their uh, weather radar actually picked up a trail of debris it picked up. A cloud of debris from the booster and then this long trail of debris uh from starship so definitely did not make it to hawaii i it wasn't going fast enough to make it to hawaii but yeah definitely did not make it out of the atlantic ocean
0: so let's do three short and sweets this week dennis what is the first
1: first up uk spaceport struggles to pay contractors the developers of the Saxavord spaceport in Scotland have encountered financial difficulty and are reportedly unable to pay approximately £1 million to a construction contractor. Sources have told the newsletter European Spaceflight that while backing from a billionaire has allowed the light to stay on, additional funding is required. The spokesperson for Saxford has said, quote, the overall project is firmly on track, end quote. And while progress may have slowed, construction is still continuing at the site.
0: And then next up, Sierra Space layoffs. Sierra Space confirmed that it has let go of around 165 employees in addition to an unspecified number of contractors. Prior to these layoffs, the company held about 2,000 employees. The reason for the cuts to the workforce are most likely due to the completion of the Dream Chaser space plane, Tenacity. Many additional hires were made to complete the vehicle. Now that it has been shipped for testing, the surplus staff is no longer needed.
2: Finally, Mars' helicopter completes back-to-back flights. As Mars prepares to duck behind the sun, the Ingenuity helicopter has completed two short hops before the two-week communications blackout. Flights 65 and 66 were conducted on consecutive days out of Airfield Fee, where Ingenuity has been based since the end of October. Okay,
0: so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have zero winners. Um, the clue was clouds before aurora. Yeah. And... Uh, so is this i guess this was a hard clue huh
2: well it was it was kind of a wrong clue um it's it's kind of my fault all right so this week in spaceflight history is the 27th of november 1963 it was the launch of the first successful hydrolox rocket up to orbit so i don't know if you guys have ever heard of this hydrolox rocket it's a bit obscure it's called centaur (laughs) um it was this, uh, newfangled experiment, uh, the U.S. wanted to develop, um, its understanding of, of Hydrolox rockets because they saw the need for more powerful rockets in the future. Um, and so Convair, they didn't buy the technology, but there was a, an airplane that was, uh, an airplane program that was looking into Hydrolox and Converse sort of inherited that knowledge. Um and they're told to go build uh Centaur. But you know, don't spend too much time on Centaur because we really need uh Atlas and everything else that you're developing to keep going. So like Here's you know a little side dish to nibble on, and so Convair uh, developed Centaur, and they also developed um, a slightly modified version of, of the Atlas D rocket uh, for Centaur to fly to space on top of. It has straight sides, but I'm not sure if the tanks, the the shape of the tank changes, but the tanks are bigger. They they elongated them, and part of that extra fuel uh, was eaten up by. Uh, the more powerful version of MA5. So that's the, the stage 0.5, the, like the initial half stage, the two booster engines that just get dropped off with no tank following them. Right, Um, Right. and so MA5 got a little bit of an upgrade. Uh, the engines got a second turbo pump. So they, they now have twin turbo pumps so they can really crank out the fuel. And like those changes, are reasonably dramatic, but for real, the the design of Centaur was uh, very tightly constrained by the requirement of making as few changes to Atlas as possible. Like we don't want to develop a new vehicle. We don't want to wind up in a Theseus's Atlas situation where we've updated or replaced so many of the parts that is basically a new vehicle that we're still calling Atlas. Um, And uh, so that those were kind of the concessions to reality that they had to make. But otherwise, they tried to keep Atlas pretty much the same. So the first Atlas Centaur was rolled out to the pad in the spring of 1961. You might remember that this week in spaceflight history is in November 1963, and this is where the clue uh, kind of goes off the rails. I made the clue to talk about this first launch, forgetting that I was actually doing the second launch as the event unfortunately like this date isn't even close enough to be a chance when somebody would look at it and go, Oh, Ben just, you know, looked at the wrong week or something like it's pretty far out. So uh, I screwed that up, but I, w- I was looking at the second launch of, uh, of Atlas Centaur and I found this cool little thing about the first launch of Atlas Centaur and that just invaded my brain and became the clue. So, uh, Like I said, the first Atlas Centaur was rolled out to the pad in in the spring of 1961. Um, And then it spent 15 months sitting out on the pad over a year. Um, It had a bunch of issues. I really would have liked to spend the time to look at every single issue. But like the biggest things were the common bulkhead leaked hydrogen uh, into the oxygen tank, which really is not great. (laughs) It's not where you want those things mixing. Uh, And they also had... uh, uh, unspecified guidance and propulsion issues. So add 13 months to an unspecified month in spring, and you get the first launch on the 8th of May, 1962. Um, and the thing exploded about one minute into its flight. So that's the cloud. The Aurora is, uh, Scott Carpenter was due to fly on Aurora seven, just a few days after the first launch of Atlas Centaur. Now, what makes us really interesting, like interesting enough that like, I couldn't forget about it and accidentally made the clue about it is that Scott Carpenter is flying on Mercury Atlas. And this is the same, this is a modified version of Atlas, but it's like, it's the same vehicle. So if the issue is with the Atlas, Scott Carpenter doesn't fly. And their initial instincts were, Oh, something was wrong with Atlas. It was probably uh, Atlas's propulsion system or, Atlas's uh, propellant tanks. And when they reviewed the footage and looked at their data, it, it actually turns out it wasn't. It was Centaur that caused this explosion. And what's this is such a fun, fun space failure. So uh, Centaur has got like these cryogenics that we've never really worked with before. And we knew that we had to keep them very, very, very cold. And so they installed fiberglass foam core panels on the outside of Centaur. And they're so heavy that it was worth getting rid of them as soon as possible. They are protecting not against like radiative heating from just you know the sunlight. They're really protecting against the the friction of the atmosphere going past. Or I mean, you know, it's shock compression uh, heating, not friction, but whatever. And so they they designed these insulation panels such that they could be jettisoned in the upper atmosphere. And the way that they worked was um, they had sort of an open hinge on the bottom, uh, sort of like a tab fitting into a ledge, right? So if they fall outward, they'll hinge around the bottom. And then once they get to a certain point, they will The the latch will come undone, and they will go flying away. Well, they lost one of those insulation panels during ascent. And it turns out that they were actually required um, because the liquid hydrogen started warming up. And there were vents installed, but the vents couldn't keep up with the rising pressure, and the hydrogen tank just popped
1: because yeah, it's a balloon tank, too, so I suppose it's more susceptible to popping.
2: So right, they balloon tanks, they're really thin and uh, eminently poppable. <laughs> and you know once they once they pop, they get torn to shreds, right? So anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of the the end of any hope of of the first launch. and what what I love so much about this failure is first off, like it's kind of fun that, you know, you lost a panel that was supposed to be jettisoned anyway, like you designed it to be jettisoned and it fell off early. Um, but also we think about Centaur as being such a reliable workhorse. Like, you know, if there's a Centaur on top of that rocket, you're good. Like you're going to go uh, spend a lot of Delta V. You're going to get yourself a really high uh, C3 value and you're going to go to Mars or you're going to, you know, whatever. Like Centaur is just, is just such an incredible vehicle. And it debuted with this miserable failure. Uh, by the way, the failure is a very interesting mechanism. What caused this insulation panel to fall off? Um, what happened is that as the vehicle is ascending, it, it actually forms like a shock cone on the front, right? And that shock cone slowly uh, progresses backwards, and when when that uh, low pressure region gets close enough to the top of the panels. it just sucked them off uh, hmm. like it, it, it they they got pulled off um, due to low pressure, not due to air rushing past them, which is what you would kind of expect uh, you know, like a mattress strapped to the roof of a sedan. Hmm. um but it, it's actually like this vacuum that that winds up um pulling them off that is neat yeah, i I, I really like that little detail. um Congress did an investigation and the it was, it was bad. They said that the overall management of the Centaur program was weak. Von Braun actually wanted to cancel Centaur. Uh, and you know, if Von Brown gets his teeth into something, you're, you're kind of toast. Um, he said he really would rather use Saturn-Agena. Uh, eventually he recanted. Uh, it turned out S- Saturn-Agena was too expensive and, uh, wasn't, uh, gonna do the trick. But even President Kennedy, um, initially was like, hey, well, why don't we just stop? stop this Centaur program, but he was convinced uh to let it keep going because Hydrolocks technology is just too important to uh the early American space race.
1: Sorry, but they were gonna do Saturn Agenas?
2: Yeah, Saturn one with an Agena upper stage, not Saturn five.
1: That is cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just I just like I didn't want to Make sure I... Yeah. I, I want to make sure I heard that correctly. Wow. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, I guess, was the era when it's like, let's do everything with Saturn. It's
2: really kind of lovely, like, the the way that they mixed and matched things. Like, they really were viewing these as, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles stacked on top of each other. It's like, well, what do we got sitting around that's got rocket engines on it? Well, these missiles. Okay, hmm. let's just stack them on top of each other. So, the the launch that this... Week in spaceflight history is actually about came five days after Kennedy's assassination, believe it or not. And unfortunately it was successful. So there's just not a lot to talk about it. Um, The, uh, the insulation, they were trying to find a better release mechanism or (laughs) rather a better retention mechanism. uh, And they just couldn't figure it out in time. So they decided to just bolt them on uh, to the side of the, of the vehicle. Um, And, it turns out that was a good thing uh the vibration data that they got back showed that they certainly would have lost at least one panel uh again um but they had it bolted on, and Centaur got up separated from the atlas and did a single burn. Um, it didn't do any relights because this is way too early. Um, but yeah, it, it did its burn and it successfully put itself in a geostationary transfer orbit where it still is to this day, by the way. Um, wow, and they and there you go. like it, it's it's a little boring, but like that's the event that I put down here. Is it any surprise that I, <laughs> that I wound up finding a clue from a totally different launch? So, right. I kind of talked about how this is so fascinating to me because Centaur is such a reliable vehicle today and the path to earning that reputation is certainly long. They did wind up finding uh, a workable insulation jettison mechanism uh, and it flew on the third flight uh, and, and it worked. But it was heavier, and you know, started cutting into the payload margins. With that said, flight three was not successful. In fact, of Centaur's first five flights, only this second flight was successful. All the other four failed. Uh, To be fair, flight five wasn't Centaur's fault; that was an Atlas failure. But like, really, a a rocky history, and and it keeps going. Of the following seven launches, that's basically the first third of Centaur D's career, all of them did turn out to be successful. So they got failure, success, failure, 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 and then seven successes. But after that, um, like seven in a row is not quite enough to clear your name after three consecutive failures and four failures in your first uh, five flights. And so I I kind of see uh, Atlas Centaur at this point kind of being in the missile doghouse, right? And so it had uh, Atlas Centaur as a pair had a long career before Centaur started moving on to other vehicles. But between 1967, which is the last of those seven consecutive successful flights between 1967 and 1997, there were 43 total launches of Atlas Centaur and eight of those launches failed. So that's... Just barely more than an eighty percent success rate, and that sucks. Right? Like <laughs> when you start so rough, and then you don't just like work out all the bugs and just okay, ding, everything works now. It it, it really was pretty rough. But Atlas Centaur is you know went on to be this really wonderful civilian vehicle, right? It it I don't think it ever f- it might have flown military payloads, but I don't know any of note. It it was science, right? Like it sent uh, vehicles to Venus. It it, it did all these wonderful things. And I'm really glad that it survived. I think the incredible performance of, uh, Centaur must have been, um, pretty darn compelling in order for this 80% success rate, um, cutting out a, a lot of failures to not be that much of an issue. But there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history.
1: Awesome.
0: Cool event. Uh, Better luck with the clue next time. (laughs) I say,
1: Ben, I I got to share some of that responsibility because – you know, picking the event to be the second launch of a vehicle is easy to mm. slip up yeah. on. I should have put like a asterisk or something next to it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, right. It is kind of a an odd niche because it's not the first launch of Centaur. It's not the first launch of a Hydrolox rocket, but it is the first successful launch of a Hydrolox rocket to orbit. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so those, those caveats yeah, are...
0: Very specific, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those
2: caveats do make this launch notable. It's just they also make it successful, which just isn't that fun to talk about uh, a lot of the time, (laughs) (laughs) at least for me. I I love failures. I love seeing that learning process.
0: All right. So let's move on to next week. So the date range for next week is the 28th of November through the 4th of December. And Dennis, do you have a clue
2: for us?
1: I do. Next week in 2015, every journey of millions of kilometers starts with a couple meters.
2: (laughs) That is a really good clue.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I I hope it turns out to be good with tying to the event. But uh, I I am happy with the clue itself.
0: Good clue. And so if you have a guess as to what that clue is referencing, uh, you can email info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon using the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And right now we only check federated toots at botsin.space and spacey.space, but you can always mention at orbital podcast at botsin.space. Or just visit our Discord and type TWSF and hand your guess directly to our TomBot. And good luck.
1: Good luck, everybody.
0: Let's uh, move on then to just three upcoming spaceflight events. I think that they're all launches. Uh, what's the first one, Dennis?
1: And first up, we've got a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking Starlink Group 629 to orbit to LEO, as they tend to go. Uh, and this has a window on Wednesday, November 22nd, from 0400 to 0831 UTC, flying out of Slick 40 at the Cape.
0: And then after that, on the twenty third, is the launch of a Soyuz 2.1A, and uh, that's the launch. Well, they're not sure about the payload. It says it's uncertain. They're, they're not sure about the vehicle, either. They're not sure about the vehicle, too. Okay, wow. All right. The uh, payload might be a BARS-M number 5, which is uh, part of a constellation that was uh, apparently developed in the 1990s. Um, and they're just continuing with that. Uh, it's an electro-optical camera. I mean, that's if it's even launching. We don't know what the payload actually is. And we don't know also where exactly it's launching from, except for please see it's Cosmodrome, but we don't know the exact pad. Uh, but the window for that, like I said, on the 23rd from 200 UTC through 2230 UTC. So yeah, that's as much as we know.
2: Good old Tams. All right. And the last launch that we have is an Electron. Uh, carrying the moon god awakens uh so this is qpsr5 uh synthetic aperture radar uh earth imaging satellite uh from iqps and dennis what why are they calling it the moon god awakens
1: oh because uh, the name of the satellite is uh tsukuyomi um which is the uh, a moon god Uh, And so it's it's I guess it's it's the informal name for the satellite that uh, is relating to the moon god. So if you're wondering why on earth do you have a name like that? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Great looking patch, too. Um, All right. So uh, the moon god awakens will be launching out of Mahia on Tuesday, November 28th between 0, 0400 hours UTC and 0, 0600 hours UTC. All right, so those are your upcoming SpaceFlight events.
0: Which means it's time to adjourn with the show, and
1: we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mr. Cesium, Gopal, Colin, Mike, Leon Running Man, Chris S, Delta V, and The Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly
0: and if you want to support the show please tell a friend or better yet leave us a review wherever you listen and you can also visit the support for our patreon campaign and affiliate links get in
1: touch find links to our mailing list discord server and mastodon account at the Orbitalmechanics.com about or you can skip all that by emailing info at the all
0: right that's it we will see you all next week on orbit until then later bye
2: everybody see